Good afternoon, and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm WFIU News Director, filling in for Herald Times Editor Bob Zaltzberg, who is away this week. In the, stu- in the studio with me is uh, Mary Catherine Carmichael. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Will Murphy. You didn't even say your own name. <laughs> Will am, Murphy, News Director. I stand behind the title. What can I say? <laughs> we have one guest for the uh, program this afternoon. Our guest is uh, Professor David Odrich. He is the Director of the Entrepreneurship, Growth, and Public Policy Division of the Max Planck Institute of Economics in Germany. He is also the Ameritech Chair of – he holds the Ameritech Chair of Economic Development at IU. He is the Director of the Institute for Development Strategies and he teaches at the IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Welcome. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Well, Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> it's very nice to have you with us this afternoon. Our topic is going to be the entre- Entrepreneurial Society, which is the title or at least part of the title of a new book by Professor Odrich. If you'd like to join the conversation this afternoon, then the uh, number in Bloomington is 855-0811. Toll free outside the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348. And the email address, if you'd like to send us an email comment or question, is noon at indiana.edu. Now, let's just start off with uh, the fundamentals of why you wrote this book. I mean, it's about the entrepreneurial society and and you're arguing for a new economic model uh, working in the world. What's the idea behind it and why did you write it? Yeah, thanks, Will. Well, in some ways, I'm I'm not as much arguing for a new economic model as suggesting one has emerged, is emerging and we better be aware that it's here. And what the basis is, the old economic model, which is what we call in the the book the managed economy, everything was pretty much in place. The firms, the jobs, our job, our task in life was really to grow into them, get the education, Mm -hmm. to learn how to do what needed to be done to fill those existing jobs, those existing tasks in those existing firms. In the entrepreneurial society – which is a response to globalization, we've got to create things that don't exist. We've got to create jobs that don't exist. We've got to create tasks that don't exist. We've got to create firms that don't exist. It's all about change and thinking up, creating things that are valued by society globally but don't exist today. That's the difference. Hasn't there always been this premise behind economic development that you think up the new widget, the new gadget, the new whatever it is that takes the uh, market by storm? Well, that's always been an element of it. But I think that uh, for uh, my generation and in the generation uh, of the baby boom generation and and, uh, their elders, we inherited an economy that was all about producing goods that already existed, that we knew existed, automobiles, steel, tires. Yes, it mattered to produce them better. But frankly, our focus was how do we uh, produce them perhaps cheaply, more efficiently? There's a reason for that. After World War II, uh, almost all of the the capital stock, the machines, the factories, the plants were in America. I don't know, I don't know, Will or Catherine, if you've ever been to uh, to Europe or to Germany or Japan, but if you go to say Berlin you realize World War II just wiped it out. I mean they lost not just their buildings, their schools. They lost their capital stock. It was not just Germany. It was all of Europe. Mm-hmm. So we, our starting point after the post-war – after World War II, we had it. They didn't have it. All we had to learn was how to operate us. In some ways you could argue that made us fat and lazy. But in any case, you know, you're right to say innovation, entrepreneurship have always been uh, important. In fact, in the book, I argue, yeah, there's a very long tradition that goes to the core of this country, probably more than other countries. Uh, uh, This is an entrepreneurial country. But in the post-war era, uh, actually, it was a managed economy where it was about managing what we had, not breaking away from what we were doing. Now, uh, you describe this this uh, this new economy that's developing, uh, and this approach of the uh, entrepreneurial society as a sort of proactive reaction or defense against globalization. How and and outsourcing, which is implied by globalization. Sure. 
How is that true? How, how, does, how do we pre prevent or uh, deal with uh, uh, outsourcing and globalization by, by taking this approach? Well, I don't think we can present, prevent outsourcing and offshoring, especially the offshoring. I mean we've always had the phenomena of, of uh, outsourcing. In fact, India – Indiana rather – has thrived on outsourcing to some degree. Uh, uh, we've been suppliers. Uh, uh, of, of types of goods or products or inputs that were outsourced from Detroit. And that created a lot of jobs in Indiana, not just in Detroit, which was good for Indiana, good for uh, the United States. As Tom Friedman points out in his book, uh, uh, the difference is now the outsourcing also tends to be out offshored and tends to occur in places in such as uh, India, China, Southeast Asia, but also Central and Eastern Europe. Now, we can't prevent that or I don't think we should try to prevent that. That's actually good. Um, I worked in a factory in high school to, to work my way through uh, uh, school and in college and an assembly line. That was tough, hard work. It took its toll on the, uh, the men and women who worked in that factory as it did through factories throughout the United States and throughout the West to offshore that work is – and give people an opportunity in other countries is a positive thing. But we've got to figure out always what's going to replace it. This is where the entrepreneurship comes in. We've got to take the opportunities we have, the assets, the resources, which more and more means ideas. It comes from education. comes from creativity. It comes from thinking from brain rather than just brawn which is what you need to work in factories. Believe me, it was a long time ago, but I still remember mm -hmm. going home with sore arms, sore back and uh, seeing people. It just took, took a physical toll, which by the way, we see in that mining incident in, uh, in, uh, in Minnesota too, right? I'm sorry, in, uh, Utah. in, in Utah rather. Uh, that's, that's brawn and uh, uh, it, it takes a toll. Our competitiveness really has got to come from brain, from uh, ideas. But it's not enough just to have the ideas. You actually have to act on them. That's where the entrepreneurship comes in. So that what, what the entrepreneurship does is it creates uh, opportunities or takes advantage of opportunities for types of, of products, activities, companies, creates jobs that don't exist today. As soon as they become standardized, that means other people realize, oh, this is a good idea. They get copied. They get offshored. We've got to stay one step ahead of the game. Now, you, you referenced in that uh, response uh, Thomas Friedman and for about the past year and a half. I mean you couldn't walk into a room without somebody bringing that up and how we live in a flat economy, a flat world. A kid growing up in Shanghai or Mongolia has the same chance as a person growing up in Fishers, Indiana. Uh, but I get the impression that you uh, take issue with, uh, with uh, Thomas Friedman on that. It's not a flat world. Well, you know, it is and it isn't. Uh, what's great about globalization is that more and more people – it, as Tom Friedman says in his book, it's one of my favorite passages he says, says it used to be a couple centuries ago to do something international, to have interaction. You actually had to have the permission of your king or queen. That's what Columbus got. That's what Magellan got. Otherwise, you just, you just stayed home. Uh, uh, a century later – it was the same thing but it wasn't the permission of your king or queen. It was really through a corporation, mm -hmm. a multinational, international corporation. Now he says all you have to do is turn on the internet, the web and you can connect. You can uh, interact. It's clearly leveled the playing field so that people have opportunities. They're no longer geographically handicapped mm -hmm. or disadvantaged. Well, it's true in this country too. You could be in a relatively isolated spot, say in uh, North Dakota or – or um, down in uh, the southwest someplace. But you have access to things that you didn't have access before. Uh, what that means is the strategy for individuals, for places and for firms in higher cost locations like the United States, like Indiana, like Bloomington says we've got to do something that other people aren't able to do elsewhere in the world. And that's what leads into can we engage in types of business, types of activity that are based on ideas that other people aren't able to create, think of, have access to do. That's the push towards an idea-based and entrepreneurial uh, economy. So in some ways he's right. We've got – we start with this level playing field. But that's like saying, oh, 
the NFL has a level playing field. Clearly, some of the teams, one up in Indianapolis, by the way, at least last year, was clearly better than some of the other teams. Um, so yeah, they've got a level playing field. But what their strategy is, what their um, what their um, uh, 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 actions are, makes a big difference, and that's what makes the that's what creates uh, makes some places, some individuals able to take advantage of globalization, whereas other people in places get victimized by globalization. Based on your response to this question and, and the last one also, I almost am getting a, a mental picture of the United States ideally, and tell me if you agree with this or not, as kind of a giant incubator, uh, hatching ideas then that go out into the world, but that the incubator needs to be an ongoing process, not not something that can really ever stop at this point. You know that. Um, Catherine, that, that's a wonderful uh, analogy or metaphor for, for an incubator, but it's always got to be on the cutting edge of what's new because people will always copy this. I mean one of the striking things to um, um, those of us of a certain age is we remember when Elvis Presley was new and quite a shock to mm-hmm. society, right? And now we notice they play his music in the elevator in dentist's office. Painful, Pe- isn't it? People <laughs> – well, it is at the dentist's office yeah. in any case. <laughs> oh. But people copy his music at weddings. They copy it. It's not just him, of course. It's the Beatles and so on. So I think it's that – it's in you're capturing the – really the race that says when an idea proves to be good and, and there's example after example. For example, Starbucks coffee, this chain, right? Uh, that was that was new. Well, now we see all around the globe. We're seeing lots of other companies, people try to copy the idea that says, mm-hmm. "Oh, you can have high quality coffee um, in a similar kind of environment." Same mm-hmm. thing you could say with Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Uh, uh, I remember when that was really the original high quality mm-hmm. ice cream, and now we see lots of people doing this good idea. So you're right to say our ability to create jobs, maintain jobs, especially high-quality, sustainable jobs in a high-quality standard of living. I think the, the, the standard of living that my generation inherited from my parents really depends on, as you said, having an incubation process that doesn't just create one new thing and then rests. In a way, that's probably why we like the sports metaphor at this time of year. The Indianapolis Colts won the Super Bowl, but you can see if they rest on that laurel, that they won it last year, they're going to be uh, they're going to end up mediocre this year. They've got to keep thinking up something new, doing something different. Same thing for us in a global global economy. But no job is really, or, or no business is really sustainable under this model because the change is constant. You know what did Bob Dylan uh, write and sing in that song uh, 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 back when I used to have a little bit more hair? He said the uh, he said the slow one now, or the fast one now. Will, will later be uh, last, uh, and uh, I think that's right. I think we can see example of uh, after example of great company, but also great location, successful location. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about companies like General Motors, I think for peop- young people today, it's hard for them to imagine. But until the 1970s, certainly in the 1960s and 1950s, General Motors was the best company in mm-hmm. the world. It was the driving force of this country. It was the company that the world looked up to. Then what you had in the um, – uh, and, and now it's a question of will the company survive? Same thing with U.S. Steel. Uh, if you look to IBM, it looks like they're doing pretty well, but they had to get out of the computer business. They're now, of course, a service, a service company. But you can see it for regions, one region or cities in our own state um, of uh, Gary, Indiana. Gary used to be a thriving, prosperous city based on manufacturing steel. The world changed a little bit. They kept producing steel and now it's one of the most depressed, most um, uh, uh, most um, uh, 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 really uh, 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 cities in trouble in, right. in this country with a big challenge. There's lots of other examples. So you're right to say this has been a constant theme in um, – certainly in, in economic history or in society. Um, I do think that globalization accelerates the sense, mm-hmm. the pace of change. Our ability to hold a new idea, a new company, a new industry, it's all moving faster now. Right. You think about it. At least two generations of people benefited from, from General Motors, from, from cradle to grave. Yes. So you see that as, as an opportunity of the past. You think things are going to change at such an accelerated path, at such an accelerated rate that that's not even in the – 
in, in our future anymore. Like the, the concept – remember the old concept we used to hear about being a company man? Yes. The company won't be around long enough to be a company man, so don't pull your full weight, put your full weight down. Is that what you're suggesting? You know, it goes back to the, um, the f- first question Will asked when he said, well, why did I write the book and uh, what does the Entrepreneurial Society mean? Well, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because a student came, a young woman, um, master's student came into my office about five, six years ago and she started telling me about the difficulty she was having with her parents who couldn't understand why she couldn't just pick a direction, a career, join a company, stay with them her whole life uh, the way that her father had done. He'd been right. with uh, Lilly Corporation mm-hmm. oh, her yeah. whole life. And you know, when you mentioned the company man, in fact, that was the credo. That was the formula that worked for most people. Uh, and worked very and, well. And worked that very made well. Them pos- made it possible for them yeah, to raise families exactly and, right. and put their children through college. That's right. Gave them a, gave them a sustainable uh, life. And then you're, you know, if you couple that with your point, that doesn't work today. Or you, know, you may be able to find an example, but it's really going to be an exception. Mm-hmm. So there's a real generational shift away from people who thought, oh, I'm going to decide what job, what career, what company I'm going to have in my early 20s or late teens. I'm going to get that job and then I'm going to ride it mm-hmm. and maybe my kids will decide something else. But it would be one thing. Yeah, and if I'm loyal to them, they'll yes, be loyal that, to me. That, we'll take care of each other. Yes, we'll take care of each other. There was a very famous book written uh, uh, by William White called uh, The Corporation Man. And it was all about the pervasiveness of this company loyalty, this conformity. He argued it wasn't good for people. But one thing he didn't mm-hmm. argue, this seemed to be good for the economy. It seemed to be good for business. And then your point, which is really the point I make in the book – whether that was better or worse, it's gone today. People have to deal with change as the rule and that kind of permanence, stability. A lot of us or a lot of a lot of us have a kind of nostalgia for it. That's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we were raised with that expectation and and so then we've got to make as baby boomers, we've got to make a giant left turn that we weren't anticipating. You know what, Catherine? That's great. And, and that's part of what's in the book. I think that there's 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 lots of um when you say expectations, I think that we all grew up with a kind of culture, a kind of set of expectations, a kind of sense of what's normal. Mm-hmm. So when the student came into my or office, admirable. or yeah, or that's right. And I think that what she was, uh, and I noticed uh, 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 many of her classmates. By the way, also in my travels around the world, I can see the same tension arise, mm-hmm. arising, uh, really for the young generation in Europe as well as uh, oh, as well as in this country uh-huh. where their parents led a different life they have different in- or I should say we have different instincts a different sense of what's the path what's the formula what's the way into the future and our as parents as the older generation are sure we want to convey this and we've been conveying this to our children but it doesn't work anymore that's mm-hmm. one of the big reasons why I wrote the the book in fact, what we'll end up doing is conveying the wrong signals, the wrong messages to, to fool them to thinking security is one direction and a, and a good standard of living when in fact it's in a very different direction. So we could inadvertently be doing them a disservice by trying to steer them into the old company man pattern. Right. Because remember, there is remember that old song by Cat Stevens? Um, I'm sure I, yeah, I can tell I you, you don't remember. I, I do. can tell you don't remember, Catherine. But you know, he said something like uh, – uh, 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 it's not time to make a change. Find a girl. Settle mm-hmm. down if you want. You'll be oh, happy. Yeah. It's that idea of, yes, you can get this kind of stability, permanence. Mm-hmm. The paradox seems to be in the entrepreneurial society by being open, receptive, embracing change. That's the way to – that's the path to security and stability. Mm-hmm. And that puts a lot more responsibility on the individual because you're going to be responsible for making sure you have your own retirement set up because you're not going to be with the same company. You're going to be responsible for, in our country at least, uh, making sure that you have health care. Um, do you see this having kind of a ripple effect in those kinds of institutions? Um, think about financial health care, that sort of thing. You know, that, that's, a, that's a great question, Catherine. Again, it gets to really one of the big messages of the book that that post-war society, which is what I call the managed economy, that's what I really mean by the managed economy because most people, most firms were really quite stable, quite permanent. Most people's working relationships, especially heads of family um, in their – by the time they're in their 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. had very stable mm-hmm. working 
experiences, uh, that meant a lot of the social types of, of, uh, of uh, relationships such as retirement, mm-hmm. health care, mm-hmm. even schools, education, community, all, all this kind of revolved around the stability of the worker firm relationship. So your point is as that becomes much more volatile, these old institutions don't work anymore. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have a health care crisis in this, in this country. We clearly have education uh, issues, if not a crisis in this country. We clearly have retirement issues. And the real bottom line is what you said. The onus is, is, is more and more on the individual than it certainly was for my generation or my parents' generation where you had this sense much more of paternalism mm-hmm. that the company would take care of you, the government would take care of you, mm-hmm. somebody would take care of you. What's interesting is this isn't just this country where this shift is going on. It's happening all throughout the uh, developed countries. So, And we weren't Excuse necessarily me. trained for these changes. Go ahead. Sorry to step in. Um, <laughs> and I you just, are. No. <laughs> I want to remind he's our, our he's listeners. Our, he's, our, he's our guest today. That's well. right. <laughs> I want to remind our listeners that we're visiting uh, this afternoon with Professor David Odrich. He is director of the Entrepreneurism, excuse me, Entrepreneurship Growth and Public Policy Division of the Max Planck Institute of Economics in Germany. Also, the Ameritech Chair of Economic Development here at IU, Director of the Institute for Development Strategies, and he teaches in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. If you'd like to join us in the program, we're talking about uh, the topics raised by his new book, The Entrepreneurial Society. If you'd like to join us, the number here in Bloomington is 855-0811, toll-free 877-285-9348, and online you can drop your comments and questions to noon at uh, indiana.edu. You've been talking about all these new models and uh, the way that economics uh, uh, are changing globally. One of the standards has also been this question of cost and market and demand. Um, And curiously, you argue that the folks who are going to go for lowest cost, companies that go for lowest cost, and one obvious example comes to mind of Walmart, uh, are going to be dinosaurs. They're going to be left out in the cold. How do you make that argument? Well, Walmart that's – that's a very good point because Walmart's strategy is based on low cost um, and they've out-competed or they're out-competing their uh, the rivals here in this country as, as well as globally as well. In some ways, they've been very innovative and in a funny way, very entrepreneurial by realizing very early on they could go to a new location uh, on the earth, which was China, and really – take advantage of opportunities there to bring lower cost goods here. So I would – I'm sympathetic with people who say, oh, Walmart in its own way is actually a very innovative company and what they're doing, of course, is offering much lower cost goods to consumers here than we could have had otherwise. It's a, it's a great thing for, for, for consumers. Now, what it's tough for is for people who are working in the retail business. Once again, that goes to show – if you're not doing jobs where you're working with your with ideas, uh, working with your brain in some ways, you're going to be condemned probably to – you're competing basically with workers in China, India, Eastern Europe, Central Europe. It's very tough for you, you to keep your standard of living up um, uh, 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 so that – uh, uh, sure, it's a company, Walmart. By the way, I, I, I would never want to say companies can't succeed by having a low-cost uh, strategy. But they can't produce manufactured goods in this country with a low-cost strategy. That's for sure. Just standing on that one leg is not going to do it. It's not going to do it. They're going to have to be thinking of something uh, other people aren't doing. Of course, that's exactly what Walmart did. They were really pioneers in realizing we can outsource and offshore. They were really pioneers at the, the, the degree they did getting uh, manufact- goods manufactured in China, bringing it in, which – has benefited uh, lots and lots of American consumers. It's real tough for the people working in the retail retail industry. And that's where that awareness of the entrepreneurial society, don't expect to have a livable, sustainable wage if you're in a Walmart company or some kind of retail that's basically competing on low cost. You need to be working in a company or some kind of activity which is based on your creativity, your ideas, your knowledge. If you can't do that, don't want to do that, 
then you've got to be prepared to probably uh, 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 be working for a wage that's going down and down and down. So you don't think qual- uh, quality can be an equalizer? Here, let me give you an example of what I'm thinking of. My brother and sister-in-law own a tool and die making shop. Um, they have a long history of, of making very good quality products, and they never claim to be the least expensive, but they claim to be the one that's going to last the longest and in the long run be the most cost effective. So now they're, of course, facing all kinds of folks who can make basically what they make, but for a lot less money. Will they last as long? No. Um, and will, will they in the long run be the best price? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on how long that product is, is, is going to be manufactured. At any rate, this is kind of the, the situation that I think you're describing, um, but can quality triumph over cost? Oh, a- absolutely. Uh, you gave an example. Uh, it, can qual- it can triumph over c- cost. You've got this race going between quality uh, on the one hand, which uh, increases the productivity of the consumers if it's, a, if it's an input or uh, increases the, uh, the benefits to the consumers if it's a consumer good versus the lower cost. We see this all the time, say, in the automobile industry. We've got these high-quality goods coming in from Japanese uh, auto producers. But we see pretty high-quality cars from other producers mm-hmm. too that are lower cost. So it's always this trade-off. But your point is for most manufacturers like your um, – like your uh, – you said your sister and brother-in-law mm-hmm. in this country – their 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 formula or their strategy is really going to have to be the quality or even the innovation uh, strategy to try to make things that don't exist today. Okay. okay. We're going to pause for a moment, give Mary Catherine a chance to catch her <laughs> breath and rehydrate. Our guest on Noon Edition this afternoon is David Audrich, uh, professor in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs here at IU and we're talking about matters economic. If you'd like to join us, we hope you will in the second half of this program. We'll be right back. I'm Will Murphy. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations, Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. Speak Your Mind is WFIU's two-minute commentary, allowing you to air your thoughts about current global or local issues. To submit your idea or for a set of guidelines, you may call us at 855-1357 or visit our website at wfiu.org. And welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Will Murphy filling in this afternoon for Hill Times Editor Bob Salzberg. Mary Catherine is uh, here in the studio with us as well. And our guest is Professor David Audrich of the School of Public and Environmental Affairs here at IU. He's, uh, he holds the Ameritech Chair of Economic Development and also is director of the Institute for Development Strategies and in his spare time is director of the Entrepreneurship, Growth and Public Policy Division of the Max Planck Institute of Economics in Germany. If you'd like to join this conversation, please feel free. The number in Bloomington is 855-0811. Toll free outside the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348. And the email address, and we have an email or two to get to in just a moment, is noon at indiana.edu. David, we might uh, start up the conversation uh, during the second half of the program by trying to localize this and make it a bit more concrete. Here in Bloomington, there's often the discussion about uh, developing an arts economy, developing an entertainment economy. Uh, people talk on the council about a living wage uh, and using uh, – it sounds like a lot of the ideas you're talking about, you talk about proximity, uh, folks getting together and collectively like they do in Silicon Valley, for example, reaching a sort of critical mass. Can you speak to how Bloomington, for example, is reflective of the kind of ideas you talk about in your book? Sure. <clears throat> when I worked in the factory back in the old managed economy, your value as a worker was almost independent of 
who was working around you. It was really dependent on the machines, the factories you had to to work with. So when a worker – and I knew people. They'd leave, say, Cleveland in a steel mill, go to Detroit in an automobile mill, automobile plant. They basically do it to get a higher wage. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't really have to do with the people that much. Once you start working with ideas but also your intuition, also your, your instinct, your trying to draw on your creativity, um, really try to draw on your, um, your spirit as a person – then the value of or really your ability to think of new ideas, your ability to learn, your ability to be creative depends crucially for most of us on the people around us. Back in the 60s, we used to say you are what you eat. Maybe that's true. But I think in the entrepreneurial economy, your ideas and your ability to act on them depends on the people around you. And you know what that says? It's really important to creative people, to entrepreneurial people, to be in a cluster where there's other people who are like them, complementary to them, have a similar kind of spirit. Um, and that's why these clusters, entrepreneurial clusters, become so important. It's a big shift where it's we move from really a non-personal economy to where your value in a way – but also your satisfaction as a person depends on the people around you. So for Bloomington, what does that mean? Well, Bloomington, like any place, has some liabilities and some assets. One of the – I mean the liabilities you could argue is relative isolation relatively. Uh, its size – a lot of us think it's an asset. Some people say, yeah, but it's not a, it's not a big city so it's always limiting. Um, uh, I guess the uh, the ocean and the uh, mountains here are not particularly noteworthy, right? But the assets we have is, uh, of course, a very creative university with a lot of interesting people, a long tradition of music, arts, and uh, 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 literature so that – uh, uh, this is an asset that Bloomington as a place can really is, – is building and I think that's right, which is can we have a cluster of creative people including artists but also musicians and this is not only makes for an interesting, vibrant place. It's good business. It's strong, solid business investment because out of this creativity comes a lot of interesting uh, businesses, industries – and uh, uh, sustainable jobs. You made a reference to the university, and obviously that is a big fish in this economic pond. Um, and there is quite a cluster of, uh, of creative, accomplished, uh, intelligent people. What role do you see gen- more generically uh, for the university in this entrepreneurial <clears throat> society that you describe? I don't know, Will, if you ever heard of the movie Breaking Away. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Mary Catherine clearly has. Uh, you remember that movie? You had a sense of the university, actually this university, as being isolated, aloof, distant, the wall, invisible wall between the town, of course they called the cutters back then, uh, which referred to the generation of of, uh, young people whose dads cut the limestone that ironically – were used for the buildings of this university, there was an invisible wall and that's really what the movie's about. Somehow uh, almost like a Romeo-Juliet sense. These are two different rival groups. Um, certainly when I – I spent the 1970s as an undergraduate, then as a, as a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, it wasn't just IU and Bloomington. That was true in Madison. Mm-hmm. We were proud. The university was proud. We didn't want to have anything to do with the community. We were a world unto ourselves. And you know, I think that the communities, just as was portrayed in Breaking Away, they were pretty happy that we kept our distance. That was this wall. Well, you know what? That made sense at that time because what could the university really contribute to an economy that was based on manufacturing cars, steel, uh, rubber? Like I say, when I worked in a plant, having a college degree, all that would do would get in your way. The last thing in the world you wanted to do was to think about ideas. The whole key to working in a manufacturing plant was don't think about anything. Keep your mouth closed. Do what you're told. Obey the rules. All you're learning at the in, in higher education was to question things, challenge things so that in a world where we knew what had to be produced, who was going to produce it, how to produce it, the university really was seen more as a, as a luxury. Yes, we needed the university for uh, democracy, for society, for the furtherment of, of Western civilization or, or civilized values. But as 
as an investment into the economy, it was seen as a consumption, as a luxury kind of a good. I think that's the way pretty much all of the West viewed the university. Well, something changed. That change is reflected in the um, – actually in the, uh, the start of, uh, of Michael Crichton's book, Jurassic Park. If you go back and look at the book, he starts something along the lines. He says, he says biochemistry used to be an irrelevant uh, subject, better left to the meanderings of irrelevant professors wearing tweed jackets in the ivory tower. And then one day it became valuable. Then he starts it with the DNA, mm-hmm. the dinosaurs and so on. Well, what happened is with globalization – as our competitiveness shifted away from brawn to just working in manufacturing companies, increasingly to, to being based on ideas, the source of ideas becomes important. One of the important sources of ideas is the university. So suddenly the role of the university shifts from what we saw in breaking away to an important institution, important source of ideas that's important not just for companies but for people, for uh, for all of society, not just for democracy and social reasons, culture reasons, but really to generate the firms, the companies, the jobs of the future. So suddenly we have a different – not suddenly but it's evolved. It's not, it, not just Indiana University. I mean universities all across this country but also across the world now are perceived very differently. Our task – Yes, it's to contribute to democracy, to civilization, to culture, but it's also to to give society return in terms of ideas for the investment they're making in the universities. And that's how Indiana University, like most other universities, is 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 changed over time. Okay. We have other questions coming from that, but we also have some emails. Yep. This one begins, could you please define exactly what you mean by entrepreneurship? For example, do you include those people who create small businesses on a local scale? For example, the local homemade ice cream shop, the clothes boutique owner, the local guitar shop, or are you referring to something else more on a global scale, that is, companies that are created by motivated individuals who are somehow frustrated by their previous employment and who have ideas that can't or won't be implemented in that arena? arena, those who then venture out to create their own company or firm with the desire to go global or at least make a profit? Well, uh, uh, thanks very much, Mary Catherine, for reading that, that question. Thanks to the, uh, to the listener for sending that in. That question really gets to the heart of two issues. What is entrepreneurship and why do people do it? The what is is – in its essence, it's people start – it's two things. One is it's a kind of behavior. It's a kind of orientation. It's a kind of an attitude. That's vaguer. But more concretely, you can focus it on starting a business. So the answer to that first part of the question is yes, certainly it's people starting uh, – what did you say? Ice cream shops mm-hmm. and bakeries and so on. The second part seems to suggest the motivations why people do it. And I think the motivations why people will start a business is as varied as why the motivations why people get married. Uh, they do it for all kinds of different reasons. Sometimes – and it's important. Sometimes they are frustrated. They feel they can't get their ideas across in some uh, existing organization. Sometimes they feel like they have an idea that they just want to pursue. Nobody else is interested. But that in itself is is crucial and tells you why entrepreneurship is so important because ideas are so precious in this society. Just the way that coal was uh, – uh, steel was precious in an earlier economy, we can't afford to let ideas just sit idle, unused. So that when somebody has an idea and says, if I can't pursue it in this organization, this firm, this context, then I'm going to go start my company mm-hmm. and I'm going to pursue my idea, sometimes it will – what actually – the third part of the question says, well, does the outcome influence whether it's entrepreneurial or not? scholars, for what it's worth, really argue about this. My answer is no, it doesn't matter the outcome. What matters is the activity. The fact is it's entrepreneurial activity. Just like marriage, some marriage work better than others. We know that. But the fact is they're all marriages. Um, Some uh, entrepreneurial activity generates a more positive outcome uh, uh, than other uh, entrepreneurial activity, but it's still entrepreneurial activity. Okay, here's a couple of follow-ups to that from the same uh, writer. Uh, are there characteristics or personality traits that define a successful entrepreneur? Is there a kind of character profile? I've read that most successful entrepreneurs have had several failed businesses under their belts, which would signal to me that many entrepreneurs are focused yet flexible and definitely risk-takers. And are they probably very savvy about putting themselves in situations where they can take advantage of opportunities? 
opportunities, such as getting sourcing from venture capitalists. Could you elaborate? If I could just interject here, we might tie into that, this whole question of the global generation as a character type. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Will. Um, you know, I, I think historically there's always been and, and certainly the way the scholars went about it was to – you know, we ask – Speaking from uh, uh, Bloomington, Indiana, um, Indiana University, the, uh, the, the home of uh, Kinsey, Kinsey asked the famous question, who does it and who doesn't do it? Well, scholars have asked the same question about entrepreneurship, the it, of course, meaning not Kinsey's it, but the it mm -hmm. of starting a business. Mm -hmm. And their first impulse, which really has lasted till about this day, has been to focus on there must be something different about the people. Maybe it's they're short. Maybe it's they're tall. Maybe it's they're old. Maybe it's they're young. Maybe it's they're male. Maybe it's they're female. Well, all these things that are about – it's, it's about the people. So that when more recently as, as places, cities, towns, countries have felt they have a deficit of entrepreneurship, they say, oh, we've got the wrong people. If we had the right people, they'd be more entrepreneurial. Uh, I've heard this said in the context of Germany. Uh, there's this sense of – the trouble with uh, – the trouble – the reason why there's a deficit of, of entrepreneurship in Germany, somehow they're the wrong kinds of Germans. If we had the right kind of Germans, <laughs> they'd be more entrepreneurial. I've heard the same thing in Indiana, by the way, that somehow people on the coast are somehow more entrepreneurial. I actually – I think that it's a very – I wouldn't want to say individual characteristics don't have anything to do with it. But I think what's more interesting is the environment actually. And that what are the, um, the incentives, the opportunities, the constraints? I think this probably is a bigger reason why people become entrepreneurs rather than their own, uh, their own inherent characteristics, mm -hmm. which is to say you take somebody, we'll just say in a sleepy town in um, North Dakota, maybe they're not entrepreneurial in any sense, put them perhaps in Silicon Valley you haven't changed their characteristics. What you've done is changed their opportunities but also their yeah. ability to act. And, and you know, going back to um, this sense of, well, maybe we don't have the right kind of Hoosiers in Indiana, the right kind of Germans in Germany. Go out to Silicon Valley and among other kinds of people, you'll see all kinds of Hoosiers and all kinds of Germans. Mm -hmm. The problem isn't so much the people. The, I think the issue for places uh, because an entrepreneurship policy – is key to the economic development strategy of places, says how can you harness the, uh, uh, the aspirations of people so they're, they're entrepreneurial, not some other place but in this place. Mm -hmm. can, can one sort of extrapolate from that that when you speak of the global generation and the environment that they live in, that they've just grown up in a sort of global environment in which the Heisenberg principle plays a large part. I mean they're always uncertain about what's coming up. There's always something new. There's something different and their parents didn't have that world. They don't get it. You know, well, I in fact, if I may, oh, sure. looking at, at uh, I think it was Amazon, one of the folks who was reading your book said, this book has been really great helping me talk to my parents. It was like a translator, which I thought was interesting. That's, it's interesting. I, I hadn't thought of that. Um, I, I appreciate you bringing up the um, – well, the, the sense that there's a, a global – generation, uh, perhaps it's just a sign of, uh, of my own maturing process. But I notice uh, most places, almost every place I go around uh, uh, the world and talk with young people, they seem to have more and more in common uh, compared to when I was young. There seemed to be a much greater distinction between, say, people growing up in Spain or people growing up in Argentina or people growing up in China. Um, clearly, this is because of the, the web, the internet, the, mm -hmm. the communications. But I think especially for this country, I think that there's the young generation who are students here in Indiana and elsewhere in the country. Uh, I think that there's a very different view of America, what it means to be American, uh, uh, of this young global American generation that is true of their parents, where they feel they're in the world like other people in the world – but they're not necessarily better or first among equals, as I think was true of older generations. Uh, and I think that, you know, Will, what you suggest is that, yeah, it's the um, it's the access to information, technology, every place that, in a way, is gives people all around the world uh, uh, a more equal chance. All right. Here's another email that came in. Uh, it begins, "Hello, I'm from Delhi, India. Could you could David tell us if if entrepreneurial society is something that is relevant only to the United States?" 
Yeah, I, well, I appreciate that question very much from the uh, from the listener. Um, you know, the answer the answer is no, and it's come as a kind of a shock, especially in Europe, where I, I work and do a lot of uh, do a lot of research and, and lecturing. Um, I think that the Europeans, but also to some degree, uh, most of the world had, had felt that well, somehow the Silicon Valley phenomena that emerged in the '90s this seemed to be uniquely American. But what we're seeing now is that as Europe, the other developing developed countries are hit by globalization mm-hmm. the same way we've been hit. Right. They're no more immune to it than we are. Uh, that their response has been to go to create an entrepreneurial society just the way we have. It leads to so it's just as uh, uh, valid uh, for uh, uh, developed countries, and we're also seeing in developing countries such as India, certainly China as well. This is a way for individuals, you know, as you said, Mary Catherine, for individuals to take their destiny in their hands mm-hmm. rather than to passively take what's handed them by existing companies or uh, or governments. So this seems to be a global phenomenon. Huh. I was talking to a guy yesterday who heads up the uh, Indiana Youth Institute, a guy named Bill Stanjakevich, uh, who studies youth issues in Indiana. And he said uh, his organization surveyed parents about what their number one concern for their kids was. And, and he said overwhelmingly the answer was, how am I going to make sure my kid does well in the future? What am I going to do to ensure success? Now, if you're talking uh, to a parent in Indiana from the vantage point of the entrepreneurial society, what do you do? What do you have to put in place to foster, if not guarantee, the success of your kid? Yeah, I, I, as a father of three, I appreciate that question, Will, and have the same concern. I have the same question myself, so yeah. I like to ask it. <laughs> but, you know, I, I would recollect a different movie um, uh, from the 1960s, The Graduate. And remember the opening scene where, where, yeah, that's right, uh, that's right, Mary Catherine, where a, a, Dustin, a startling young Dustin Hoffman actually is graduating from college, isn't quite too sure what to do, and a well-meaning family friend uh, 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 whispers in his ears. Well, Mary Catherine already gave away the puns on plastics, right? And notice that was the point was he was well-meaning, said, "Do this, and you'll get." Uh, uh, you'll get success in a, in, in a kind we'll of a future. You'll have a future. Life, yeah. I think what stayed the same over time, parents, the older generation has always been, thank goodness, concerned about exactly that question. How can we provide a future for our young people? That gets right back to where we started off at the, at the beginning of the, the discussion, right, Mary Catherine? Yeah. The formula that worked just a generation ago go into plastics, go into autos, go into steel, go into something secure and this will gen- – then you've got it made is exactly the wrong message. So, Will, the, the answer to that question, uh, my sense is, is prepare kids to – for change. Prepare them to be uh, – to deal with diversity, diverse situations, different situations. Prepare them to get them used to moving around, get them used to thinking about the world in a bigger sense. Travel probably becomes more important. Mm-hmm. I never had a passport till uh, till I was uh, thirty years old. I didn't think ever think I'd have one. I didn't even ride it, fly an airplane till I was twenty one. Um, I'm a real product of my generation. You know, most of us don't raise our kids this way. I think that we can feel the future of our kids be- depends on nourishing their creativity, nourishing their independence, nourishing their inner spark. Because their ability to thrive really is based on linking up what's in them to the outer society. That's very different. Uh, If I can just finish by saying I was – my mom uh, passed away a few years ago and as I was cleaning out her basement, I found her report – my report card from the first grade, something like 1959, 1960. And I was shocked, Will and Mary Catherine, how bad my grades were. I would have thought I was a better student. But I was equally shocked at what I was graded on, at least in upstate New York, uh, 1959, 1960. Uh, Obeys orders, gets Mm -hmm. along with others, does what he's told, is reliable. It's very clear, at least back then, people thought that the success for the next generation depended on keeping your mouth shut, doing what you're told, obeying the rules, conforming. Then you become one of William White's uh, uh, corporation men if you were lucky enough to have a white collar, work on a, in a factory if you were, had a blue collar. Either way, you'd make a good, sustainable, middle-class livelihood. That formula doesn't work anymore. That's where I go back to – and I think that's the way we are raising our children now. 
creativity, independence, thinking for yourself because as, as Mary Catherine said before, they're going to have to use their own resources mm-hmm. but also link it up to what Will was saying with networks, clusters with other people to kind of forge ahead in the future almost the way American pioneers and immigrants did this. Uh, uh, generations ago. I read a book recently by um, Dr. Greg Sipes uh, and he said uh, – he, he was talking to a, a friend who was raising children and, and they said, I wish I would have spent more time preparing my children for the road and less time preparing the road for my children. <laughs> you know, the, um, the great German uh, philosopher uh, 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 Goethe wrote one time, the greatest thing a father can give his son is roots – so he knows where he comes from. That makes sense. Those are the kids. The second greatest thing is wings to escape them. Yeah. And I think that goes to show this idea isn't so new, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we've only got uh, a minute or two left here uh, and we wanted to ask before uh, we wrap up this uh, program, why so much music reference in the book? Yeah. Um, it was really the generation of the 1960s, just a little bit ahead of my time, that was raised – to continue to take on, to take over the managed economy. Uh, They were the ones who were raised in the late 50s, early 60s. They went to the proms. They listened to um, uh, – well, they listened to uh, 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 Elvis Presley. They watched uh, Ozzy and Harriet on the (laughs) – Leave it to Beaver on the television show and so on. They're the ones who rebelled against that managed economy. The music that came with that, like Bob Dylan – um, um, uh, was a music that was focused on rebelling against the managed economy, rebelling against all those values I was talking about, conformity, uh, doing what you're told and so on and instead put the emphasis on uh, uh, creativity, emotion, instinct and intuition. That's why that music I think is almost a, a starting point for the emergence of the entrepreneurial society. Okay. We are going to have to leave it there. If you want to find out more about the lyrics and uh, some of the premises behind the Entrepreneurial Society, we advise you to maybe go check out the book written by our guest today, Professor David Aldridge. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very much. On behalf of Mary Catherine Carmichael, editor Bob Salzberg, producer Aliyah Mood, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Will Murphy. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.